Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 75. It had taken 20 years from the initial British landing in the Cape for the occupation to become permanent. So by August 1814, following the first abdication of Napoleon, the Netherlands regained independence with the Prince of Orange reinstalled as sovereign. The British duly restored some of his colonies to him, but not the Cape. In 1803, Lord Nelson had said the Cape was not essential, but by 1814 this had changed. The problem for the Cape was that colonies were supposed to balance their own budgets, and the British had tried to help this little African backwater by allowing Cape wine growers to import their product into Britain for free, no tariffs. By 1813, sales had risen, and eventually, and something you'd probably be surprised to hear, by the time of the 1820 settlers, 10% of all wine drunk in the UK came from the Cape. The big issue was most of this came from Crown lands run on behalf of the government, not from independence. With such a vast territory, why were the cash receipts from the Cape so low? Sir John Craddock had reformed the loan farm system you heard about last episode, which was supposed to lead to more productivity and sales as proper leases for land were signed. Craddock was replaced by Lord Charles Somerset, who took up the mantle of this farm improvement campaign. He was a descendant of the Plantagenet kings and had lived a comfortable life at a place called Badmington. Somerset had also proved that soldiering in drawing rooms was safer and more profitable than actually doing any fighting. He held the rank of Major General in the British Army without actually ever hearing a shot fired in anger. He did look rather splendid on his white steed, an admirable companion to the king, the prince regent, the duke of York, and William Pitt, and had made a romantic runaway marriage with the beautiful Clara Courtney. When Lord Charles took over as governor of the Cape in 1814, which lasted to 1826-27, he reported to the same boss, Earl Bathurst, who has a town named after him in the Eastern Cape. Bathurst was colonial secretary between 1812 and 1827, an unparalleled term during which he was to deal with a number of new colonies throughout the empire, including the arrival in 1820 of English-speaking settlers who were going to change the complexion of South African history completely. And by complexion, I don't necessarily mean the color of everyone's skin. Somerset, to his credit, was uninterested in politics, the profession which is perennially overrun by scum and narcissists, but he was a Tory at heart, a conservative. The problem with this new governor is that he tended to become hysterical if crossed, or if he thought his vanity had been impinged. Bathurst, on the other hand, was a descendant of East India Company merchants. He was more serious-minded and was worried about the evils of slavery and wanted to avoid oppressing his subjects in places like India, China and the Cape. Bathurst was cautious and street smart. Somerset was spoiled and tone deaf. Somerset was also very sensitive to the colonial budget. Most of the Dutch at the Cape accepted the British, which is another of these facts that is buried in Afrikaner nationalist history writing. They were passive, but not enthusiastic. At the same time, they couldn't really care about their brethren on the frontier. For the farmers of Swellendam, the Cape Flats, Stellenbosch, the British could very well be another passing parade, similar to the VOC, while the Trekboers were poor cousins, to be ignored, if not disdained. Lord Charles was aware of how important it was to keep the Dutch farmers close to Cape Town happy, 
Remember, the soldiers of the House of Orange in Holland and the English had fought together to defeat Napoleon, so earlier differences were put aside. You've heard already how Somerset had choice words to say about missionaries who he regarded as borderline revolutionaries, while at the same time he actively supported the burghers and what could be called their decent Presbyterian doctrine, decent in Somerset's mind at least. The Church of Scotland was Presbyterian after all, a church-state relationship encouraged by the British government paying subsidies towards the recruitment of Scottish ministers of the cloth. Many of these would have a big influence on Cape society, particularly the Dutch and later the English. There are some famous names in South Africa today who can track their ancestors back to this zealous lot. Take the Forers of Stellenbosch, for example. Abraham Forer's great-grandfather came to South Africa as Governor de Chavon's secretary and married an English girl to become a reliable supporter of the colonial government. He was also an excellent journalist and educator. Forer's successor as the minister of Graaf Reynet was Andrew Murray, a Scot who was educated in both Aberdeen in Scotland and Utrecht in the Netherlands and brought by Lord Charles Somerset to serve in the Dutch church. Murray did this with aplomb and lived in Graaf Reynet for 45 years. He married his 16-year-old sweetheart, Maria Stegman, and they had many children. Five were to become Dominies. Andrew Murray Jr., one of these priests, lived to see his son, John Nettling, fight for the Boers against the British in 1899. A family history like this explains why English and Dutch speakers could merge to become a new people of South Africa. However, things on the eastern frontier had become fraught by 1817. Drought had exacerbated this situation. Since the defeat of the Amatkos in the Albany district in 1812, the border had been fortified with several lines of military posts, in itself a permanent statement of power which the British hoped would overawe both the Boers and the Amatkosa. Each of these 26 posts were created to guard a strategic point, such as a drift across a river or a bit of high ground or an area near where farmers were developing the land. They served as a base for a garrison to keep hostile territory under observation, and the men patrolled regularly. The officers in command had orders to shoot any Amatkosa they found without so much as a buy your leave. The garrisons were really rehabilitated farmhouses of wattle and daub, or now and again stone-built shelters surrounded by earth redoubts. The British had established two main lines of these defensive posts, the first along the west bank of the Fish River, and the second directly behind it to act as support. A few more scattered posts could be found as a third defensive area further west, which guarded the lines of communication. As the VOC had found out, this was an extremely difficult challenge in the vastness of southern Africa. Everything hinged on the importance of Fort Frederick at Algoa Bay because of its control over the entire harbour area. Transportation from Cape Town to this region overland was still slow and unreliable. The only way in with any speed was by sea, so creating a central site on the Kawi River in the Utenhag district made sense, and that place was Grahamstown. Once the land around it had been emptied of the Amatkosa, of course. By 1813, another military camp was set up in the Graf Reynet district at the northern end of the line as a kind of fulcrum around which military matters took place. Small units of Royal Artillery, Light Dragoons and Line Infantry were part of these garrisons 
and the main force used was the coloured, part Khoi, part San, part Boer people, the men of the Cape Regiment. There were 515 rank-and-file soldiers and 79 officers and NCOs by now, and the headquarters of this regiment was moved from Riet Valley, near Cape Town, all the way to Grahamstown. The British regarded the Cape Regiment as their shock troops of change and increased their numbers to 800. The entire families of these men were moved to Grahamstown with them and rapidly built domesticated settlements with colonial trappings. Their children were now being educated at a regimental school founded in 1814 in Grahamstown, but things were not as happy as they sounded. As soon as you have men with guns living together with access to money and whiskey and beer, things can go pear-shaped. The military posts became associated with vices like prostitution. I might cause a woman often arrived here being driven to the centres by poverty and latterly by drought. Prostitution was probably the main profession at Fort Frederick, for example, and venereal and other sexually transmitted diseases suddenly made their full appearance. And so the safety and security of the frontier was placed in the hands of brown soldiers paid by the British, something which unnerved the Boers, and soon the Amakosa would feel equally unnerved. These Cape Regiment troops were holding back the Amakosa from returning to the Zurfeld, or the Albany thickets, but the Fish River is no place to try and hold anyone back from anything. It's a poor barrier of broken bush terrain, and its flow slows to a muddy trickle during parts of the year. The so-called drifts were bypassed by many unofficial drifts, where the Amatkosa and Boers continued to cross over this muddy stream whenever they felt like it. We see a distinct phase ending. The Fourth Cape Frontier War of 1811-12 had led to the expulsion of the Amatkosa from the Albany area, and this was a culmination of the first phase of intensive contact between the colonists and the Amatkosa. As historian Herman Gilliamy has noted, the war ruptured the ties of trade and labour between the Tkosa and the Trek Boers. This had actually kept them together in a relationship of mutual dependency, despite three previous uprisings. There had been no decisive victory because the Zurfeld Amatkosa were a fractured people, as you know, distracted by their own internal rivalries. The military technology they faced was superior and they had no coherent plan to deal with the colonists, the Dutch, the British. For the people of this land, something now changed. The harshest military methods had been used to expel them from the land and these would become standard methods in the future. Then, after the terrible Slachter's Neck hangings of 1816, Lord Charles thought it high time that he assert himself as governor of all things seen, and he'd been frustrated to hear that the Amatkosa continued to waltz across the Fish River whenever they felt like it, despite his Cape Regiment posts dotted all the way from Grafrenet to the Indian Ocean. The farmers of the Zurfeld, a.k.a. Albany region, complained in 1817 that since the Fourth Frontier War five years before, roving bands of Amatkosa had stolen 36,000 head of cattle. This wasn't idle talk. Ninety of the 145 Trekboer families had abandoned their farms, while the others were close to doing the same. Somerset had come to the conclusion that Lieutenant Colonel Graham had come to much earlier, a large-scale, dense colonial settlement here would change the entire region for the better. They needed European settlers to set up farms and bring their skills to this wild land.
Somerset travelled to the frontier to impose his policy of separation and summoned Inglika and Tlambe and lesser chiefs to join him on the banks of the Cut River, the same place, by the way, that VOC Governor Janssens had met Inglika in 1802. Somerset had no idea that the chaos his predecessor had caused along this frontier had increased tensions within the Amatkoseni, the chiefdoms of the Tosa. The British governor wanted these chiefs to accept their responsibility for the theft of Trekboer cattle and had something up his sleeve. He reinforced the spoor or reprisal system, where a farmer reported the loss to a military post. The patrol then followed the spoor or the tracks to a homestead, and that homestead either coughed up the stolen cattle or paid compensation in some way. If the thieves had purposefully driven the stolen cattle past the homestead, and the Amakosa within were innocent, then it was up to these poor innocents to track down the real culprits and hand the cattle over. Fully aware of his appearance, Somerset arrived at the Cut River regally on a white steed with burgundy outfits and strange wigs. His men set up an extraordinary large white pavilion on the 3rd of April 1817, then dragged two four-inch howitzers to be placed at either side of the carpet-lined entrance. Somerset's military escort there was substantial. Over 300 Cape Regiment troops were marched to the Cut River, all with their weapons primed and then drawn up into a traditional 19th century hollow square. Inglika and Slambi and other chiefs were separated from the 800 warriors they'd brought with them and then escorted into the menacing square. They were now surrounded by the Khoi and mixed-race soldiers who were not their friends. This was part of Somerset's grand illusion, the magnificent British Empire, arraigned across the Eastern Cape Belt, colourful, powerful, scary. Makulubar Somerset, you could say, grandly took a chair while he made the Amatkoza chiefs squat on the ground. And here you really do have to grimace because Somerset was about to make the same mistake that the Dutch and his British predecessors had made for decades. He presumed that Inglinka was the big chief, the senior chief of the Amararabi, and that he could assert his power over all the other chiefs. By now, you surely must be rolling your eyes. Because we know, and so did virtually everyone else who'd spent any time in the Albany district with the Amatkosa, that Inglinka did not control other Kosa chiefs despite being the apparent senior leader. Inglinka was singled out and held responsible for the spur tracking law. While Somerset was waxing lyrical about how important it was for chiefs to rule, Inglika raised his hand and interrupted, pointing out that he did not possess this authority. Somerset, shocked at being interrupted, lost his temper and began shouting about how Inglika was being evasive. Yamatkoza chief really did have the power. Inglika glanced about him inside the square of Cape Regiment soldiers. It was clearly a nervous glance. He had also just received a long list of gifts, a grey horse, a sack of shawls, handkerchiefs of silk, buttons, beads, mirrors, knives, a tinderbox, saddles, and he felt cowed, so he agreed to Somerset's demands that he could, in fact, protect the frontier farmers from the Amatkosa crossing the muddy and barely flowing Fish River. Once Inglika had agreed to stop what he couldn't, Somerset was assuaged and ended his haranguing. The meeting was over. The British governor then continued on his grand tour of the frontier inspecting defences. He changed the system slightly, ordering the number of posts on the front line down to 14 along the Fish River and for a second line of 13 posts in their rear, 
He then abolished the third line of communication posts. His order led to the strengthening of 16 existing posts and the construction of three new ones. Each of these actually looked different. The layout was varied, with some stout and loopholed stone enclosures, including bastions for artillery at the corners, to others merely made of dirt. But he did increase the strength of the 21st Light Dragoons along the border. Then, dusting his hands, so to speak, he headed back to Cape Town by ship. As he arrived, it was with some surprise that he read a letter from Lord Bathurst announcing that the Cape garrison was going to be further reduced from 4,000 men to 2,400 and that all cavalry were being withdrawn back to Europe. Many would have thrown up their hands, but not Somerset. He left 1,100 of these troops along the frontier, a wise decision, as you're going to hear, but withdrew the dragoons in July 1817. He then changed the Cape Regiment from a pure infantry unit to reconstitute them as the Cape Light Infantry and the Cape Cavalry. Then he dispatched reliable parties of Khoi Khoi NCOs and white officers around the Cape with brandy and tobacco to try to encourage volunteers for the Cape Regiment. None of the Khoi in the mission stations joined, and very few from the Trekboer farms. As with other periods in history, such as post-World War I, powerful countries make big mistakes after a big war. Because Napoleon was defeated, the British began to reduce the size of their army and navy after 1812. The military numbers declined from 240,000 to just under 90,000 troops worldwide. They were clearly overstretched, overburdened and over here, so to speak. The garrisons were an imperial bluff that masked real vulnerability, as historian John Labunt has noted. The British appear to have a potent power in reserve, ready to arrive at a moment's notice, summoned by local governors like Somerset. The reality is there was virtually no reserve at all, and if they ever arrived, it would take many months, if at all. But the officers and men who were on these frontiers were helping spread British norms and tastes, including their taste for evangelical Christianity and philanthropy. The elite guard units stayed at home along with the cavalry, while infantry regiments of the line, along with a small corps of royal engineers and royal artillery, made their way to face the Amatkoza. And who were these soldiers? Military service was long, around 21 years in the infantry and 24 in the cavalry, before you could think of taking retirement. Regiments stationed abroad would find themselves located in places like India and South Africa for 10 to 12 years. It wasn't all that the brochures indicated. These were rough assignments. The food was terrible. The disciplinary code included lashing. It was insanitary and cramped where they lived, and they were discouraged from marriage. Sounds something like the Amazulu, you could say, who were at this very moment building their power through their chief Shaka, who deployed a harsh disciplinary code and discouraged marriage, although apparently his food was better and the barracks less cramped. But you understand the comparison, I'm sure. Unlike the Zulu regiments, which were made up of the cream of local male society, the British Army of 1817 was full of unskilled labouring class, and all that was required was a form of physical fitness and a minimum height. Officers bought their commissions using influence and money. They came from an alien world of refined gentry. It was a wide gap between the soldier and the officer in this army. Flogging for desertion, insubordination or theft 
was reduced to 300 lashes, but only in 1829. In 1827, troops could receive 500 lashes for talking back to an officer. That was almost a death sentence. These were the troops and the officers arraigned along the Fish River and who were to face another uprising shortly. The British had learned to dress a little better by now in the felt. Instead of their elaborate Regency shakos and long-tailed ornate coats, They wore short shell red jackets and peaked forage hats to keep the sun off their necks. The Roinek, as they were known, still wore their red and fought wars like this was Waterloo. The Cape infantry and cavalry wore green or brown, but the officers lit up the felt in their red jackets and sparkly buttons. Juicy targets they would be. While Somerset sipped his now excellent Cape wine back at Government House in the lee of Table Mountain, Great events were taking place far to the east among the Amakoseni. East of the Kai River, the Matraleka were resurrecting their power as an important Kosa great house. They were recovering from internal divisions and their defeat by Nguika in 1795. Hinsa, who was Kawuta's great son, as he was known, had been a tiny five-year-old when he succeeded his father in 1794. Now, in 1817, he was a powerful chief and had asserted his rule amongst the Amakaileka line. Hinsa, who is probably unknown to most South Africans today, is the most impressive of the Chawi line of royalty. Both honourable and politically astute, he was in favour with the majority of the Amakosa for one main reason. He was generous, building his herds by pressurising the rich, the wealthy Kosa, rather than stealing from the poor like others were known to do. We're going to hear more about Hinsa next episode. We'll also hear more about the war doctor Ngeli, whose real name was Makanda. And you'll probably understand by the end of episode 76 why Grahamstown is now called Makanda. The reason goes all the way back to 1819 and something that is called Makanda's War, or the Fifth Frontier War, which is imminent. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there, at Des Latham. Until next, salagatli.